0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. The war has taken its toll on the Christiansen family. With food rationed and the money scarce, Charlotte struggles to keep her family well fed. Her teenage daughter Kate raises rabbits to earn money for college and dreams of becoming a writer. Her husband Thomas struggles to keep the farm going while their son and most of the other local men are fighting in Europe. When their upcoming cherry harvest is threatened, strong-willed Charlotte helps persuade local authorities to allow German war prisoners from a nearby camp to pick the fruit. A new novel is out by Lucy Sonnets called The Cherry Harvest. It's a coming-of-age story exploring the hidden side of the home front during World War II. We're going to talk about this uh, today, and we'll hear uh, an excerpt from our StoryCorps project when we were in Logan. A StoryCorps was uh, Jean Thackeray has an experience of a German POW that she encountered in Utah, northern Utah. Lucy Sano, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Tom, so much for inviting me.
0: So you uh, grew up, understand, in Wisconsin?
1: I did. I grew up in, I was born in Menominee, Wisconsin. I'm living in Madison right now.
0: Oh, in Madison. And then you sp- you do spend some time in the Bay Area?
1: Yes, I do. I divide my time between Madison, Wisconsin, and San Francisco.
0: Okay. How did you come across this interesting history? This is, I I think, not a lot of us know that there were a lot of German prisoners of war in in various, uh, you know, near very small towns.
1: I know. It's not something that we learned in seventh grade history class. Uh, Basically, about four years ago, a friend of mine uh came across some information on the Internet about it, and I had never heard of it. So I thought, I'm going to check this out. And there wasn't very much on the Internet, as a matter of fact. And so what I did was I went to the source. I went to Door County, Wisconsin, where um, prisoners did pick cherries in 1945. And I stayed there for a while with my daughter, Kate, Katie, and we. Uh, I spoke to the people at the library. And they put me in touch with people at the Historical Museum, and they put me in touch with people who actually were there on cherry orchards when the POWs were there picking the cherries. So it was really quite a find. Um, And I also learned why we don't know about it. Which is why? Well, basically, um, what happened was when the U.S. entered the war in 1941, the British had captured thousands of Germans, and the the, uh, rumor came that Hitler wanted to airdrop weapons into the camps so that the Germans could attack from within. So the British asked the U.S. to take the prisoners off their hands. And the U.S. reluctantly agreed, but where were they going to put them? There was no place in Europe that was safe, and they would have to feed them and guard them. So what they did is they put them on returning empty liberty ships. Those were the supply ships that sent supplies over to um England, and uh, to the American soldiers as well. And they brought back, by the end of the war, 400,000 to this country. Uh, and, of course, the U.S. didn't want the populace to know about it. They didn't know what they would do. Some of them might attack them. Some of them might be looking for their relatives. So there was a media blackout. And once the um, prisoners were sent back, the records were either destroyed or classified.
0: Uh, and it, you say the media was, was asked to, to, to not broadcast this and and they didn't. I guess that's one reason why we don't know about this.
1: Why we don't know about it. That's right. I mean we, we didn't have embedded we didn't have embedded journalists back then. So and when the ones that did go out to work, for example, the cherry orchards and they worked in factories, some factories, not military factories, and in canneries Um, They basically became, they were sent around as migrant workers, and they replaced the migrant workers who had gone to better jobs at the factories. And they were sent basically to rural areas where they were needed, and they weren't put in places in the cities or around where there was a lot of media. So people didn't really know much about them. And right now I'm interviewing people still who were in those rural areas who are now coming forward and telling their stories.
0: Yeah, fascinating. So 400,000 by the end of yep. the war, that's that's a more, lot of prisoners. More than
1: forty thousand. That's right. There were more than forty-five thousand here in Wisconsin alone.
0: So I, I I guess the the government put them near small towns, dispersed them out uh, to better aid the, their goal of not uh, not getting this out. I guess not getting it publicized.
1: That's right. And the other the other benefit that the government received in that is they basically paid their own way. Um, they earned their keep by working.
0: Hmm. Uh, including in in your novel, the the uh, the. POWs are, are enlisted to help with the cherry harvest.
1: Right, right.
0: We'll get into talking about the characters. Very fascinating. And, and I guess this this came about with you imagining, learning this fact, the German POWs, and then what would happen as they start interacting with, with some, uh, some people?
1: Yes, as soon as I heard about that, I saw conflict. I saw, you know, the enemy at the gate, basically, right outside the door. And I, my idea, the main idea of the story was that Charlotte would be desperate for um, the, to, to save the cherry orchard because there was no one to pick the cherries. She would petition the county to bring the prisoners in. She would have a son overseas fighting against the Nazis. And at some point, they would have to come into conflict. So that was mm-hmm. the main idea of my story. And the daughter and father's characters... Uh, uh, Kate and Thomas, their characters came a little bit later, their stories came a little bit later, but that was really the central idea.
0: So tell me about, the, about your main character, the, the mother.
1: Okay, well, Charlotte um, is from a farm. She marries a, a, a fellow, Thomas, who owns a cherry orchard. Uh, she's very taken with the fact that he owns a cherry orchard, and but he really would much rather be a university professor or own a bookstore or something. He had to come back. Um, to take care of the orchard because his parents were his, his parents were injured. Um, so he's kind of a dreamer, and so she really works to keep the keep things together there. And in 1944, they've already gone one year without a harvest, and so they're going to lose the orchard unless she can get someone to come and pick the cherries. And when she hears that there are prisoners of war coming to town. Um, Or at least coming into the area, uh, she petitions the county to get them onto the land to take care of the cherry trees. Mm. Uh,
0: And uh, she's very strong-willed. And opening scene of the book, Uh, tell me about the opening scene. Uh, The daughter (laughs) Kate, the daughter Kate races rabbits, and that these are pretty hard times, right? There's rationing and.
1: Yes, yes, yes. And basically in that opening scene, I wanted to do a couple things. I wanted first of all to show you the desperation of Charlotte. I wanted to give you I wanted to give you a hint that she and Kate, well, you know, Kate's a 17-year-old. I've been a 17-year-old and I've had a 17-year-old daughter, so you know, I know what that relationship can be like. So she and her mother are a little bit she and her daughter are a little bit at odds. And I also wanted to show what's very natural on the farm life. You know, you kill animals, you raise animals to eat. So in the opening scene, she is butchering one of her daughter's rabbits. Um, and people right away go, ooh. But anyway, it, it does show the desperation and of the time and of her character. And um, it's what she has to do. Mm-hmm.
0: And these rabbits are symbolic for Kate, I believe. This is. Yes. She's going to raise money from them and she wants to go to the university.
1: Yes, and Charlotte's not real. Charlotte doesn't think that's a very important thing to do. Although mm-hmm. Thomas does, so yeah. the, Thomas and Charlotte are at odds over that about Kate. Every there's conflict. <laughs> I try to put as much conflict in as I can, and there's mm-hmm. conflict just about on every page. Uh,
0: so, uh, the, the, you um, you write about the the conflict or or the uh, the economy here. Everybody moves over one right. The the men are off fighting. Uh-huh. And and migrant workers as such are moving into those jobs, yep. and so there are some jobs that are that need doing. And as That's you right. say, the the, the family that depends on the cherry harvest, uh, they're going to lose their business unless something happens.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Uh, so Charlotte's idea is, well, they got the German POWs here, right?
1: hmm
0: And we can we can bring them over to to do the harvest. That's right. Uh, so. I I don't know what what research you did on on that that aspect of it, but I I guess the the German POWs these four hundred thousand they they were put to work.
1: Um, well, there were four hundred thousand. Most of them were German, but there were also Italians, Russians, and Japanese. In addition to the Japanese who were interred here, uh, and it was only the Germans who were allowed out, and probably because they were oh. Caucasian and that maybe. The U.S. was more afraid of the other people than the Germans. I'm not sure, and they they did separate out the Germans, the ones that they thought were safe, um, and they weren't always right. Mm.
0: <laughs> yeah, so only the Germans were let out.
1: That's right.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, not even the Italians. I guess you know, no, each immigrant no, it's... group comes in and gets gains acceptance. Because Italians hadn't gained acceptance by then. Um, so, some t- not always safe. You say? Did you you found?
1: well instances. that's right and um there were fights within the camp sometimes um between the the um germans who were who were loyal to hitler and the ones who were friendly to the americans the ones who were friendly to the americans sometimes found themselves um at odds with some of the other ones so um and some of them escaped some of them um were hidden at the end of the war by the families where they worked. They became friends with the families, uh, and some of them came back afterward. They were sent back to their native countries, and some of them came back because they really had it they really had it good over here. They really uh, enjoyed their time here. They were treated very well.
0: Hmm. I've I've read accounts of POWs on both sides. You know, some were treated horribly. Um, but in some cases, uh, you, you you have a sense of relief that I'm, the war is over for for me.
1: Yes, right. They were probably shaking their boots on their way over, wondering what was going to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. But but in some cases, they they lacked it enough to to to, to immigrate. I guess.
1: That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, some of the some of the um, farmers where they had worked sponsored them to come back, paid for their way to come back, and then they sort of worked it off once they got here. Mm-hmm.
0: So I guess in some cases, at least, this you could consider this a, a a natural antipathy that that might happen was was overcome between the town and the and the POWs.
1: That's right, but um, it, it wasn't always the. It, it's not always the case. I mean, there are always some people in the town who are um, upset about it, afraid, um, people who've had their boys killed over by the Germans. So there was a lot of, um, at least in my book, (laughs) Mm -hmm. there's a lot of controversy over the whole thing, which you know just adds to the tension.
0: Uh, Maybe we could jump ahead in the book uh, and 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 loop back. So the son Ben, he's over fighting,
1: right? He's over fighting. He's fighting the Nazis, right?
0: So when he comes home, you could understand that uh, you've got a Nazi as sure as he sees it right here (laughs) working on the farm.
1: That's right. Yeah, so you know there's going
0: to be a conflict there. Yeah. Uh, Here's uh, an email. By the way, uh, we have email and phone lines open. We're talking with Lucy Sana. Her book, new novel, is The Cherry Harvest. Very interesting uh, take on a a little-known fact. I think it's not all that well-known. Many uh, POWs uh, from the Axis powers in uh, World War II were... uh, were shipped to America, uh, stationed uh, in camps near small towns. The The lid was kept on this in terms of publicity, and many of them, or at least the Germans, were allowed to, out of the camps to work. And uh, so Lucy-san is imagining the setting in Wisconsin uh, where German POWs are working on a cherry harvest. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us to our email, upracess at gmail.com, upraccess at uh, gmail.com. Here's an email from Gary and Logan. Um, he says, I heard about the Nazi POWs for the first time on an episode of Radiolab a few weeks ago. I was amazed at their uh, experience here in the U.S. even occurred. Uh, it was interesting how in the episode, they shockingly told of how the small-town farmers and families embraced their presence meanwhile japanese americans were being imprisoned in internment camps simultaneously that that is a quite a stark juxtaposition
1: it is it is but and as i said there were japanese also there were japanese prisoners also but they weren't allowed out so it is interesting and as, again i think it's because um because the germans were caucasian um and and you know there was a uh quite a german population in certain parts of the country as well mm-hmm. There's one story of one of the uh, German prisoners escaping and going up and knocking on his father's door. (laughs) Wow. Yeah.
0: Really? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Amazing, amazing. Uh, Yeah, so you got this juxtaposition of Japanese who are are in camps, and then Japanese-Americans who are are in these internment camps. I know, and Germans
1: weren't interred here. It was the Japanese. Yeah. Of course, the Japanese were the ones who attacked us.
0: Right, and and, and, the, and the probably, well, not probably, an undoubtedly, racial prejudice. Yes,
1: yeah, exactly. It had to be. Ra- it was. I think it's very racist that only the Germans were allowed out. As a matter of fact.
0: Yeah, but yeah.
1: Probably because of certain fears, but yeah. you know, racism as well.
0: Right. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, more with uh, Lucy Sana, her, uh, her new no- novel, coming of age story, very interesting, and and uh, treats, uh, little known fact, the the internment of. Uh, of uh, prisoners of war, up to, t- to 400,000 by the end of the war, uh, a lot of the Germans were let out to work on the harvest, and so we have a farm family with a, with a business, uh, raising and selling cherries. Uh, they're about to lose the business unless they can get some people to work the, the harvest, and they have a ready-made workforce. But then Conflict ensues. of course, is a novel, and uh, uh, we'll uh, talk about the Christie family. We'll also talk about the prisoner of war at the center of this, uh, Carl uh, More following
2: the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, an in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation. Featuring food, film, speakers, workshops, and outdoor adventure. Details at shiftjh.org. And the Utah Shakespeare Festival, featuring South Pacific, in addition to seminars, green shows, and more. As part of the festival experience, information at bard.org.
0: Tchaikovsky thought his Symphony Number 6 was his greatest achievement. How powerful is it? Somehow the music keeps going, even after the sound has ended. Conductor Leonard Slatkin joins me to introduce the piece, and we'll hear him lead the Detroit Symphony in concert on the next performance today from APM. Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Lucy Sana on the program today. Her new book a novel out from HarperCollins is called The Cherry Harvest, it's a coming of age story exploring a hidden side of the home front during World War II, in which a Wisconsin family farm community invites German POWs to work in the local orchards with consequences no one could have imagined. Uh, you're welcome to join the conversation at 1 800 826 1495. Perhaps you have an experience in your family um, that uh, you know, it's a little known. You could share it with us. Maybe you had uh, POWs working your farm, for example, 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com, Upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, Lucy, son, I'm reading on, you probably noticed this as well, on goodreads.com. There's some responses and, and some questions to which you respond. Uh, A yeah. couple of experiences. Deanne uh, says, my mother remembers German soldiers working at the sugar beet farm of her father in Utah. So experience here in Utah. And there's another one, Lauren, who says there were German prisoners kept in many small towns. The small city where I lived, across from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Port Allen, had many in a camp right in the middle of town. They were brought each day to work at the sugarcane fields, since so many of the workers were off to war. So many experiences uh, around the country. This might be a good uh, time to bring in um, an excerpt from a StoryCorps interview that was done in Logan, when uh, UPR was hosting StoryCorps in in Logan. I believe this is 2007. And uh, a Logan woman, uh, Jean Thackeray, remembers uh, this experience. Let's hear this.
3: During the war, most of the men were gone. And so there was a lot of need for people to come and thin the sugar beets and to cultivate the potatoes. So they brought the German soldiers in from Tremont Utah. And they had guards with them. And when they brought them in, why, I had a roll that my dad gave me I had to do, but it was way away from the soldiers. And I would weed and they would weed. And then one night when they were all through, I was still out in the field and one of the soldiers was crying. And I went up and to the guard and I says, What's wrong? And he said he has a little Bible that he brought from Germany, and he's had it with him all his life, and he's lost it somewhere in that field, and he's heartbroken over it. And I stayed until I found the soldier's Bible in the field because I knew which rose he was working on, and I found it, and when he came back the next day, I gave it to him. He was so thankful, and of course he wanted to give me a hug, but he couldn't, and so he asked the guard if he had a nickel. And the guard gave him a nickel and he went back and carved out of that nickel a special little necklace for me and brought it back to me the next day. He'd left the band of the nickel all the way around, but he had carved a little hole in the top and it looked like it was a half moon. And then I put it on my necklace. I've never heard that story before know. You'll have to show that to me. Mm-hmm. I will.
0: So that's Jean Thackeray, a Cash Valley resident uh, telling her story. I believe this is 2007 StoryCorps booth when it was in uh, in Logan. So Lucy Sana, that's that I guess that would be somewhat typical of uh, you know places all around the the country.
1: That's right, uh-huh. and you know it's it's amazing that we don't know about it. It's amazing that it was kept so quiet for so long.
0: Do you think this is coming out more now? I guess, I it guess is.
1: Um, I, I, too, heard the Radiolab uh, interview, the special. It was great. Uh, and so many people were shocked by that. Uh, and it is coming out more. And one of the things is, and one of the, I'm glad I caught it just in time or almost in time, uh, the people who can speak about it, it's a small, diminishing group. I'm interviewing people who are in their late 80s and early 90s, really, and, um, other than that, there are people who were children who were very small at the time, and they can just remember waving to the prisoners, things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, the stories are, might be coming out because um, people are telling them before they leave.
0: So you're continuing to interview people?
1: I am. Mm-hmm. I am. Right. I'm, I mean, people are interested in telling me their stories, and um, I, I may do some further writing on this in, as mm-hmm. nonfiction, actually.
0: Yeah, I, I, I was wondering what you were going to do with this. Uh, and I guess maybe people come to you because because of
1: the book, because they know you've... Because of the book, they in. know that I'm interested, that's right. And People can reach me through my website, which is just lucysana.com, L-U-C-Y-S-A-N-N-A.com. Okay.
0: There's
1: a contact page there.
0: Yeah, it's important to preserve those stories, as you say, that people are, yes. are are leaving us. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about the story here. So, so Charlotte uh, convinces the people, okay, let's bring the POWs in that of course will help to get the harvest in and save the business but then her husband Thomas befriends one of the prisoners a teacher named Carl
1: yes he's a real dreamer and his concern is that Kate go to college he had to leave college to to take to take care of the farm so um he brings in the prisoner into the home to tutor Kate and of course that's that brings a whole another level of problems mm mm-hmm. Uh, when um, I don't want to give anything away, but <laughs> <laughs> things happen. <laughs>
0: yeah, there's going to be. You can see. You can see some conflict uh, setting up here. Um right. And I don't know whether, whether you encounter in your research, did you encounter any, any of these sorts of conflicts that appear in your book?
1: Um, yes, uh, there are people who. Well, not not that one in particular, but I do know that some of the some of the POWs did marry. Um, some of the people here, uh, I interviewed one of the widows just the other day, um, and I interviewed people who were angry about the fact that the prisoners were getting such a good deal, the way Charlotte is upset with, you know, what the prisoners are getting and when she's, you know, she's her family's practically starving, she's thinking. <clears throat> one of the people I interviewed uh, was a son of a fellow who owned some acreage, and they were pulping wood for the paper mills and there was no one around to help them so it was just the father and son doing it and they would work long long hours seven days a week and on Sundays that land was right next to the airport where the prisoners were stationed. And on Sundays, the prisoners would be out playing volleyball and listening to German music. And this fellow said his father was so angry that they were allowed that, and here he was working so hard. (laughs) Yeah. So there was was a lot of resentment like that. Well, there was some resentment um, like that. But for the most part, uh, from what I learned... The people on the farms really appreciated uh, the prisoners, and the prisoners really appreciated the, the work, the work they were getting, the treatment that they had, and uh, the, it was pretty congenial, at least for the ones who were let out.
0: I don't know if you came across any uh, any families who had POWs of their own, you know. And I don't know what the disparity was, uh, you know. I'm guessing Hogan's Heroes doesn't uh, accurately depict life in the you know, <laughs> Stalag, you know. <laughs>
1: No, so I, I don't, don't know if there was any resentment so. well, that Well, we way. just heard today on the news that the Japanese, that um, Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi apologized to the American POWs for using them as slaves mm-hmm. in their plant. And, you know, that's a real, that's a far cry from the way they were treated over here.
0: Yeah. Um, I wonder if you talk a little bit more about um, Ben's reaction when he comes back. This, this, you know, it's it's quite striking well, and and it's I, quite logical, you know.
1: Yeah, I don't want to give away too much, but um, he is horrified that these prisoners. Well, he hears about it in a letter from his girlfriend first of all, and demands <clears throat> that the parents send it back. But they they know that the the harvest is almost over, and they'll be gone before he before the war is over. But he does come back, and um, he's particularly infuriated with the prisoner who's allowed in the house to tutor Kate. So that's. That's really toward the end of the book, mm-hmm. um, and as I say, I don't want to give too much away, right, but right. Um, yeah, there's that's a major conflict point of conflict that the, the whole book is is moving toward actually.
0: And you can understand you're you're out fighting the Nazis, you come home, and yeah. there's a Nazi in your house, so that's you know that's right. Uh, and that's uh, right. that I guess that's stereotyping, and who knows what? I, I guess that's you know because in war, I guess the first thing that happens is the propaganda to to fire right. everybody that's up. that's the way and,
1: he's yeah that's the way he saw them. He mm-hmm. saw them as as Nazis as he saw them as enemies, right. no matter whether they were just young boys who were sent to the front to be captured or killed or um whether they really were believing in what Hitler was doing. He just saw mm-hmm. them all as the people who were killing killing him when he was over there yeah. fighting killing his buddies.
0: If you just joined us, I'm talking with Lucy Sana and her uh, new book's interesting coming-of-age novel, which treats a, a little-known fact in in American history. It's perhaps coming out now, and as Lucy Sana says, uh, that generation's dying off. So important to preserve these stories. Lucy Sana is, and she's uh, preserved this uh, in fiction in this book. It's called The Cherry Harvest, and it's out from HarperCollins, just uh, published. Um, and you're welcome to join the conversation here, if you would like, at 1-800-826-1495. There were German POWs uh, doing this sort of thing in Utah, we know, and we just heard a, a story from Gene uh, Thackeray. I also heard this excerpt from uh, from Goodreads.com as well. You can join us on our website, uh, uh, actually email to upraccess at gmail.com, Upraccess at uh, gmail.com. So, Lucy Son, I wonder if you could uh, tell me about this this place. You've, you've, uh, you've very evocatively... Um, to be redundant here, evoked <laughs> uh, the sense of place. So, and this helped me, a little a little visual. If you hold up your right hand, that's Wisconsin. The place you're writing about is the thumb.
1: Yes, it, it, it's a wonderful place. It's called the Cape Cod of the Midwest, as a matter of fact. And um, in order to really get the sense to immerse yourself in the place, for the reader to immerse Herself or himself in the place. I, as I said, I went and I stayed there for a while, uh, just to get the feel of the air and the. We were right on the Lake Michigan, um, and the the water and the sounds, the birds and the frogs, and um, and it's a it's a place that is very forested. Uh, and but there there are just a few roads up one side of the peninsula along. Lake Michigan and down the other side, which is really along what's called Green Bay. Uh, little tiny towns, lots and lots of cherry orchards. As a matter of fact, before the war, up until about that time, uh, Door County, Wisconsin, supplied about 93 percent of all the cherries that were were eaten in the in this country. Hmm. Uh, it was the main. It was the main place. Now Michigan is. Um, the largest producer and uh, Washington State is also a big producer, but there's still a lot of cherries up there, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful spot
0: mm. so tell me there, oh, oh go ahead
1: I was gonna say it's lot it's very green, um always green, and um the weather's lovely uh in the summertime because you've got the the air from both sides of the water. Uh, it's snow. It's totally snowed in in the wintertime. So it's a very fun place to visit.
0: Hmm. Uh, tell me why it's called Door County.
1: Okay. It's called Door County because there is a two-mile strait, and I just went across this strait last week up to Washington Island. Uh, actually, Washington Island used to be called Pottawatomie Island because the Potawatomi Indians were the first to live there, and then the U.S. Army came along, and it was Washington Island. So anyway, now it's Washington Island, and there's a two-mile straight between the tip of Door County and Washington Island, which is still in Door County. You take the ferry over, and it's called the Ferry Across Death's Door. That's Death's Door because um, the, it's so ha- it was so hazardous traveling through there. There are many shipwrecks. Um, below there, so that's where the name Door County came from. It was from Death Door. As a matter of fact, you can take a um, they have they have small plane rides that go along the coast that look down, and you can see all the shipwrecks up and down the coast because it's such a dangerous place.
0: Uh, and uh, I I would imagine you can't name the county Death Door County because that that would...
1: <laughs> would yeah nobody would want to go there.
0: Uh, depressed tourism, yeah. So so Yeah, right. So Dor Dora County, right, right. that's fascinating. So you you've you've taken many a trip over there to, you know, doing when you're writing the book, preparing for it, right? And
1: Oh yes, yes. I spend a lot of time. I, I I I spend about two years researching and writing this book. Actually the story came pretty quickly. But I've been back a lot since as well because it is so lovely and I've gotten to know the people up there. And um, the people at the Historical Museum, the two curators at the Historical Museum, are just great. They looked at my novel, my manuscript, as soon as I was finished. They went through the whole thing to fact check it. Uh, And one of them was old enough to remember the time. But They would tell me things such as, oh, we didn't have wild turkeys in Door County at the time, or that wouldn't have been a sand... Uh, parking lot. It would have been gravel. Things like that were just great and how the mail was delivered and what the roads were and all that. But there was one thing they told me that I had purposely um, changed. And that is that the prisoners in Door County picked cherries in 1945 when the war was over and everything was lovely and nobody was afraid. And I changed it to 1944 because I wanted the war to be going on so that um, we, w- we would be afraid, mm. so that there would be reason for, um, for conflict and tension.
0: Yeah, a little poetic license there. Yes. Uh, so uh, tell me a little bit more about this. You know, you're doing this research. You have to change a few things for the, for the novel. How is it different from, from today?
1: Well, it's only different in time. Mm-hmm. Um, the place is pretty much the same. Uh, it, there's a lot of, there are a lot of tourists now, but there were a lot of people may, especially from Chicago who would go up to that area. They owned cabins up there um, but pretty much well they don 't have as many farms and um, the cherry harvesting process is very different. I was lucky that one of the people that I interviewed, one of the men I interviewed, his name is Jim Ellers, uh, was fourteen at the time that the POWs were there. And he went on to get a horticulture degree and went back to Door County and basically um, became, he was the expert, the cherry uh, harvest expert. And uh, I interviewed him, and so not only was he able to tell me about the POWs, on the farm and how that went, but he also was able to tell me how uh, cherries were harvested back then, which is different from the, the way they are today. To, back then they were picked, of course. Today you can still pick them. They still pick your own cherries, and that the season's going on. It's starting right now in Door County. Um, but now what they do to harvest them is they use these big harvesters that shake the trees, and they have nets to catch the catch the cherries. It's a lot less labor-intensive, but um, it's different. And they also, they're all a lot less they use a lot uh fewer chemicals um they used to use uh, lead arsenic as a matter of fact on the cherries. so there's some hot spots up there mm. uh, but anyway mm. he he told me all about this, and it was great um to learn both both uh, sides both about the um agriculture and about the prisoners so i I put as much into my book as i as I could without overdoing it you know when you're writing a when you're writing historical fiction, you gotta get everything right otherwise you lose credibility for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't want to dump so many facts, and there's so many things I want you to know, but I'm not going to tell you, because uh, it, it it gets in the way of the story. You know, it becomes a treatise on some little tangent. And, uh, <laughs> right. It's interesting to me, but, you mm-hmm. know, there's so much I can't, I can't right. put in there, get in the way of the story.
0: Yeah, I think uh, readers have complained ever since that... Uh, Melville put all that that whaling stuff, you know, those chapters on (laughs) obscure whaling techniques in in Moby Dick. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so I can see that's that's a balancing act. Uh, Here's an email from Betsy and Logan uh, who says, I'm curious if you've ever been able to track down any of the German POWs, if you have a firsthand account of a German soldier on U.S. soil. As you mentioned, this is a narrative that is quickly disappearing. Is there a chance of tracking down any of these people?
1: Well... I would love to do that. Um, as I said, I did uh, interview a widow, and I plan to interview her son as well. And apparently his father kept a journal. So I'm hoping to get my hands on that. And he's got a lot of photos and things like that. But to, as, as yet, I have not spoken with any of the POWs themselves, no. Mm-hmm. I'd love to do that.
0: Yeah, and there may be some people doing that, uh, maybe you know, back in Germany and such. Could be, uh, and as you said, some of them came here after the war.
1: Actually, somebody did give me a phone number for someone in Germany who was a POW. Um, I haven't spoken with him yet, but I do need to get in touch with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's quite—he's—he's he's in his nineties, but apparently he's on email and um, but yeah, he's back in Germany now.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's take another break. When we come back, more with Lucy Sana, whose uh, book is out. It's a coming-of-age story set in Wisconsin, uh, Cherry Country. Uh, Door County and uh, German POWs who are uh, encamped there uh, are allowed to come over and uh, and work the harvest, and uh, some conflict ensues. Uh interesting uh, plot and a wonderful evocation of, of this time and place. Um, it's uh, out from HarperCollins. You can join the program here at 1 800 826 1495, that's toll free wherever you're listening, or the email is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. More following the break.
2: Remember MacGyver? He will find himself, you know, in all kind of crazy places. All right, MacGyver, think. And he will just look around. Rope, a smoke alarm. That dude made, like, jetpacks out of toilet rolls. Yes, yes. But against all the odds, he can do it. It just might work. I'm Guy Raz, making the most of what we've got. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: This is Brian Erickson in Bringing More to Life. All caregivers are not created equal. Give yourself time to learn this new role. Observe and ask for advice from peers who also face the challenge of parenting parents. Worry less about doing it right and focus more on showing you care. Remember often, your presence is enough. Engage and appreciate care facility staff. They know your parents' needs. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives.
2: Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation and Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com.
0: Listening to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking about The Cherry Harvest. It's a novel out by uh, Lucy Sana. Lucy Sana uh, splits her time between Wisconsin and uh, the Bay Area, grew up in Wisconsin, and has uh, set this uh, coming of age novel in a very interesting time and place 1944. And a little known fact uh, up to 400,000 uh, prisoners of war were uh, dispersed across the country. The uh, press was asked not to publicize it. They didn't, and as a result, uh, we don't know a lot about this. It's it's coming out now, and uh, there's a German POW figures prominently, along with this uh, farm family, in the novel. We're talking with Lucy Sana on the program today. Uh, we have another 10 minutes or so left, and you can join the program at 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Lucy Sana, I wanted to get back to this uh, sense of place. You wrote a, a blog post on your website, by the way, it's Lucy Sana. Sana is Lucy sanas Sanaa's S-A-N-N-A dot com. Um, and you uh, you talk about the fact that you wanted to set at least part of the novel on the stormy side of, of this peninsula. You also I, said on your website you love weather.
1: I do. So tell me more about that. I, lo- I love weather. You know, I, I as I said, I... I divide my time between Madison, Wisconsin and San Francisco. And in, in California, I really missed, when I lived in California, I really uh, when I'm in California, I really missed the, um, the thunder and the lightning and the seasons, and um, I just, I don't know, there's just so much excitement in that. Um, and so I put it on the stormy side of Door County, the Lake Michigan side, because I want it, because it's a stormy story. You know, I didn't want it to be. It starts out as if it's going to be something. You know, you think, oh, this peaceful little farm, but no, it's not. It's um, a lot of stuff happens, and I wanted the weather to be a part of that as well.
0: And it's it's always interesting that the history of a place is inescapable, and it's it's interesting to if you're connected to that, if you if you learn about it, if you know about it. Um, so, for instance, that Door County you have all these shipwrecks.
1: That's right. Well, that's just they're right. just
0: they're present, right?
1: They're right. They're there. So I mean that that speaks to, you know, the whole stormy business, um, the the stormy history, uh, yeah, the desperation.
0: I always like to have people who are familiar with more than one place. You know, a lot of us are, you know, we're rooted in one place, and that that's great. You have Wisconsin. You have the Bay Area. Uh huh.
1: That's what, right.
0: What's give me the sense of each place? What's what's the flavor?
1: well a lot of it there there there's a lot of similarity between madison wisconsin and the san francisco bay area and uh the similarity comes from the university university in madison and the schools in on the peninsula and around that area stanford and berkeley and um so we have that that's intellectual there's a lot of culture and um a lot of creativity in both areas both of them are very progressive Uh, But the differences have to do with, uh, in the Bay Area, things move a lot faster. Uh, There's a lot more traffic. And um, people in Wisconsin are, I guess, all in all, I guess, well, Wisconsin is a very friendly state. Uh, In the Bay Area, I have got some great groups of friends. But there are so many different, um, oh, different things going on there that, um, I don't know, I don't know exactly how to, how to say this, but um, I, I feel really comfortable in both places because of the people, I think, mm-hmm. but the, the people are different in both places. I
0: wonder if we did treat a little bit of your biography, your, I was reading your long biography, there's a short biography and a long biography on your website, <laughs>
2: yes. uh,
0: and I was fascinated to, you had, uh, I, I think I can detect a little bit of you in, in Kate. I, I, I think, oh really? I, th- <laughs> I think you wanted you had aspirations beyond maybe what the what the stereotypical aspirations would have been.
1: Yes, I guess. That's right.
0: Um and and so you're you're out looking for a job and, and every place you go asks you to take a typing test. <laughs> tell yep. me tell me about that.
1: Yep. Okay, well um I was I wanted to work in publishing. I had majored in English literature, and I wanted to work in publishing, and so I went down to Chicago, where my I was going to be living around that area, went down there from Madison, where I had been in school, and um, because my husband, my fiancé, was down there, so I thought, well, I'll go work near where he's going to be. So I went to... There, there are a number of publishing companies in, in Chicago, small publishing companies, and I went down, and every single one, the first thing they asked me to do was take a typing test. And I'm, I've got really quick fingers. I took classical piano when I was younger, and I aced those typing tests, and right away the first thing they said was, Oh, you got a job. We want to put you in the typing pool. I thought to myself, What? I don't want to be in a typing pool. And so um, I went, when I got to Scott Forsman, which was in Glenview, Illinois, at the time it was the largest textbook publishing company in the world. I went in, and they asked me to take a publishing test, and I flubbed that up so well. (laughs) I did that on purpose. I think I got a 35 or something. (laughs) And so what what did they do? They didn't throw me out. They gave me me a proofreading test. And after I passed that one, they gave me an editing test. And after I passed that one, they gave me... Um, a story for seventh grade readers and told me to send them to read it and to write out a list of vocabulary words and um, the teacher's questions for the story. And so I took that home and I sent that back right away and they hired me right away as an editor. <laughs> so I skipped the typing pool.
0: <laughs> yeah, very clever of you. I guess, you know, after a few, you've, you, you, you well, got you gotta wise. you got to do what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do, yes. I assume that things are different today, you know, if you're advising your daughter or, or uh, you know, a student or someone to, uh, you know, a girl, that uh, h- how to get ahead, are There, um, I don't know if there's still barriers, and I assume things are a little better.
1: Well, I think there are barriers to a certain point. I think it probably depends upon which field you're going into, and um, when I, I have to say, when I was, uh, I worked for 20 years at an uh, energy think tank. It's a great place to work. Hmm. And when I was named speechwriter for the for the president, they put me into the executive suite, and I was the first woman in the executive suite who wasn't a secretary, and they didn't have a woman's bathroom in there.
0: Interesting. <laughs> yeah, little, little <laughs> indications. Down the hall. So that mm-hmm. still exists today. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. We have another uh, email coming in. Um, this is... Uh, from Lee, who says, I seem to remember watching a one-hour documentary about German POWs in the U.S. It would have been on PBS or the History Channel. I don't remember. I don't know if you've run across this. Was no,
1: I don't, I'm don't. i not aware of that. Hmm. I'd, I'd love to find out about that.
0: Yeah, we'll have to look for that. Thanks for that heads up, Lee. Yeah. Appreciate that. I wonder, we just have a few minutes left, I wonder if you talk about uh, process. I always like to, to ask uh, writers about process and, and as a introduction to this, I love this quote on your website. Dogs are great critics. They love hearing your work, especially when they know there's a walk at the end of the chapter. So you're you're you run your chapters by your dog.
1: <laughs> no, actually, that's my daughter's dog. That's your daughter's um, dog. Okay. What I, I guess my process is uh, with this book anyway. Um, I I saw the idea, which I I told you. And then um, I just started writing. I, sometimes I write longhand. Sometimes I write on my computer. <clears throat> when I really get going, I'm, I'm sitting at my computer and moving pretty fast. And um, i write a chapter at a time, but I've, I'm always thinking way ahead. What's next? What's next? What's next? I don't write an outline. Uh, toward the end, I, I write an outline just so I can keep track of what's happened so far. But then I have a writing group. I love my writing group, and I would advise anyone to get a writing group. Uh, it has to be the right writing group, of course. And there are there are four of us, and we're all writing novels, uh, and we... Basically, bring our novels in, and, and we read aloud uh, up to 20 pages, and then we critique each other's novels. And it's a, sometimes it's an all-day process, sometimes it's two days. So we really, it's we really take this very seriously. It's it's um it's our job. And um, I usually write at night. I Usually write in the dark when things are quiet. And then, in the glare of morning, I look at what I wrote the night before and sort of wonder where that came from. <laughs> but then I have fun editing it, so that's that's mm-hmm. basic my basic process.
0: Mm-hmm. Once you've sent the novel off, as you've done here with the Cherry Harvest, do you do the characters live on with you, or, or do you put them away?
1: I have to tell you, I lived with these characters for two years. They were the family I woke to every morning and said good night to after dark, and you know. And now their story's done, and you know they're their books ended and so i have to close it reluctantly mm-hmm. and let them go and i i only hope that my readers will enjoy their company and remember them as i do
0: yeah so what what's next you said you 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 are doing interviews i guess you your stories come to you because of this research you've done
1: yes um i'm i'm planning on on writing some articles about different families and different things that happen perhaps but i have another novel that i'm also starting on as soon as i I get the time to do that. Um, it's, it'll take it'll take place in the same era. I don't know what it is about this era that attracts me, but it'll take place in the same era but in, uh, in New England.
0: Oh, interesting. Uh, we'll look forward to that. Um, in the meantime, The Cherry Harvest is out from HarperCollins, and the author Lucy Sana has been with us. By the way, her website is lucysana.com, Sana with uh, S-A-N-N-A. Lucy Sana, a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Tom, for inviting me.
0: And uh, hope, yes, our, our pleasure. Um, and uh, coming up tomorrow, uh, a couple of interviews I did uh, on uh, Friday in Vernal. Talked with uh, longtime municipal council member um, Joan Cowan, and we uh, talked with city manager Ken Bassett. We also talked with one of the uh, StoryCorps facilitators. Uh, StoryCorps booth is there outside the U.N.A. County Library uh, through the 29th. And so we'll talk about some issues in rural Utah and some specific to Vernal. That's tomorrow on the program. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. An in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation. Featuring food, film, speakers, workshops, and outdoor adventure. Details at shiftjh.org. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education.
4: Have you heard about the Yellowstone to Uinta Connection or the Western Wildway Priority Wildlife Corridor and the Bear River Range Corridor? What we will talk about today is the critical importance of protecting, maintaining, and creating wildlife corridors throughout Utah and the West. Animals, and yes, plants, and all other critters that live in ecosystems, such as birds, insects, and amphibians, always suffer when their ecosystem and the ecosystems that are adjoining theirs, either through land or water corridors, are fragmented and minimalized, if not lost altogether, due to human activities. The ever-expanding web of roads and highways, residential and commercial development, intensive agriculture, energy development, and off-road vehicle trails, in essence, trap animals in an ever-shrinking island of non-connected ecosystems. It's when species can't move between ecosystems to mate, migrate, eat, pollinate, find new homes and resources, recycle nutrients, seek refuge, and more— that inbreeding can cause significant problems for flora and fauna, sometimes even extinction. Our politicians and agency folks, as well as developers, farmers and ranchers, businesses, and everyday residents can all help to assure we preserve, maintain, and develop a network of these corridors connecting large and small ecosystems running from Canada through the United States into Mexico. One such large project called the Spine of the Continent is a geographic, social, and scientific effort to sustain linkages along the Rocky Mountains so that plants and animals can keep moving. A local example, the Bear River Mountains, located in northern Utah and southern Idaho, is a relatively narrow tract of forest land in the Uinta-Wasatch-Cache National Forest and the Caribou and Targee National Forests. This mountain range and surrounding basin are a key component of the Western United States biological corridor system. The Bear River Basin Corridor is a critical choke point for species migration in the Western United States because it offers the only major link between the Northern and Southern Rockies, or more specifically, the link between the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem and the High Uintas Wilderness Area. Here's how you can get involved. We have dedicated organizations working on the protection, expansion, and maintenance of wildlife corridors. I mentioned the Yellowstone to Uinta connections. They, along with the Bear River Watershed Council and others in our state are actively working on wildlife corridors. I spoke to Dr. John Carter, manager of the Yellowstone to Uinta's connection about their program. They're doing great work to restore fish and wildlife habitat in the Yellowstone to Uinta's corridor through the application of science, education, and advocacy. He invites you to check out their website at www.yellowstoneuintas.org. I'm Jim Goodwin for Wild About Utah.
2: Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About
0: Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org.
4: This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, hd one Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.
2: Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Coming up next is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. The time now is 10 o'clock. ¶¶